Here at Lady Farmer, we talk about so many different aspects of slow and sustainable living, a subject matter that can at times feel confusing, overwhelming, even misleading. And that's why a few years ago, we set out to write a book that might be a guide for those seeking a life of beauty, simplicity, and sustainability. We're thrilled to be able to offer you our own small guide for cultivating slow living, sustainable simplicity close to home available in our online marketplace. In the book, you've woven an easy-to-digest narrative of stories, recipes, tips, resources, ideas, and reflection. This collection of essays and resources will guide you to think about your own relationship to the planet, what you eat, what you wear, and how you live a sustainable lifestyle. It also contains a 21-day slow-living challenge of daily thought exercises to lead you in the process. For you Good Dirt listeners, we are offering free shipping of this wonderful little book with the code THEGOODDIRT in our online marketplace. So use the code THEGOODDIRT, T-H-E-G-O-O-D-D-I-R-T at checkout when you go to purchase your copy of The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living in our online marketplace for free shipping. That's The Good Dirt at The Lady Farmer online marketplace for free shipping on The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks, everybody. Part of what we see in this choice, it's a softer, slower, more appreciative way of living. You get to enjoy. It's about quality of life. It's about community. It's about being able to slow down and celebrate and appreciate not just the taste and the flavor of the food, but in how it's produced and in the connections to the people producing it. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hello, everybody. So good to be back with you for another week of The Good Dirt. We've got a really great episode for you today. But first, we want to tell you about what we've got coming up next week. Yeah, so if you've been with us for a while, then you might remember us about this time of the year. We run the Slow Living Challenge we've done in the past couple of years. And funnily enough, in the year 2020, we did the Slow Living Challenge just before the world shut down with the pandemic. So that was fun. We were all trained up for yeah. <laughs> a little more slowly. It was good timing. <laughs> yeah, and really every year it's such a wonderful opportunity to sort of tune in to these ideas that we really talk about and 
have some actionable steps to enact just a more mindful and observant and slower way of being. We cover all different aspects through food, clothing, and just kind of the way that we move through the day. So we do it together as a community and you sign up via email. If you go to our website, ladyfarmer.com, at the top, there's a bar that says click here to join the Slow Living Challenge. So you do have to join even if you're already on our mailing list to get these emails and we'll send you every week for the entire month of February. We send you, well, it's once a week, but you get like daily prompts within that email. So every day of February, there are very specific things to be doing. And uh, we share about it together on social media. And if you're already a member in the Almanac, we will be sharing in our journeys there too. So yeah, the Slow Living Challenge. It's a really fun to use an overused term. New Year Reset. How would you describe it? A couple things I would say. Talk about slow living, really. We're not talking about leisure, so to speak. A lot of people say, oh, you know, I, I, I can't do slow living. I'm too busy. It's more about bringing a consciousness and a mindfulness to what you are doing so that things don't feel so harried. Yeah. Yeah. And then Emma mentioned that there are things to do every day. These things don't really take time. These are right. more like prompts prompts more like thought exercises actually I would right. say I mean some of them might take five minutes or whatever but anyway it's kind of a whole combination of things the other thing is if you sign up for the slow challenge and you're not already in the almanac don't you get a little free trial yeah you will get a free trial if you sign up for the slow living challenge oh that's great so we want people to know that yes and uh, you might decide to stay in and join us yeah all right so look for that and come join us go on our website sign up get the prompts Come in the almanac. A lot of fun stuff there. Okay, so about today's episode, Emma, have you been noticing all the news about the supply chain issues that have been going on in the last several weeks all over the internet or all these pictures of empty grocery store shelves and people wandering around with their empty baskets, wondering what they're going to do? Yeah, I've noticed a few of these stories, yeah, sort of on the top of the news cycle. Now, I haven't been experiencing it personally because as listeners of this podcast might know, you and I are members of a CSA, which yeah. means we get our food straight from the farm. So it's one of the amazing, like, that's just something that I just really haven't, and I don't go to grocery stores very often. So I haven't seen it in real life, but I have seen it in the news. And it's not just the toilet paper kind of thing that we are experiencing at the beginning of the pandemic, but it's really like bread, milk, really important things that are in short supply in the stores. But it's not actually a shortage of the food. It's more of the labor shortage and the handling and packaging and the transporting of the things from the source to the shelves. And when you think about it that way, imagine how much is being wasted by just missing that sort of arm of the operation. Because as you said, it's not like there's not enough food. It's just that there's a breakdown in the system to the point where it's not getting from A to B. So then what's happening to that food? I don't know. Is it stuck on storage containers? Is it stuck in warehouses? Yeah, it's pretty horrifying to imagine you know what's happening when all those things are not getting where they need to be like for people to eat and for it not to be wasted and what's happening all in between so anyway that really speaks to our topic in today's episode which is something we like to talk a lot about on the good dirt and that is the importance of eating locally grown food right and as I just mentioned we're really lucky to be surrounded by so many great farms where we live and we both subscribe to a CSA which is community supported agriculture there's also amazing access to farmers markets where we are and if you live in a city probably have the same you know you're in a city but you can probably get 
access to good food. If you're out in the country, you're near farms, amazing. But there are places where there's not farmer's market and there's not CSA. There might be farms, but there's no real way to access the food. And so a lot of what we're talking about today with Liz is kind of establishing these reliable local food sources in different communities here Liz is a neighbor of ours, but also Liz does work all around the country and the world to connect food with people. And what she does specifically is something called a buying club. So Liz Reitzig runs a buying club right here in the local DMV area. And that's actually how we got to know her before we were members of our CSA. Both of us bought stuff through her club. And I was really exposed to a lot of awesome farms and products that I didn't know about before buying from her. So that was fun. Yeah. So Liz is here to tell you all about what a buying club is and how it works and how it differs from a CSA and lots of other things that have to do with eating fresh, nutrition-dense food, local food sourcing, supply chain, and food waste issues. This is just an information-packed episode. It definitely is. I really learned a lot in speaking with Liz, and this is a good one. Yeah. I'm really proud to share it with you guys. So thank you so much, Liz, for coming on the show, and enjoy. My name is Liz Reitzig, and I am most well-known for operating a food buying club and working on food access issues in this country and other countries. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about how you got to what you're doing today. The short answer to that, Mary, is my children. Uh You know, as, as moms, we want the best for our children. And when my oldest was a baby... She had some pretty serious digestive issues and the medical professionals that I took her to kind of scratched their heads and said, well, we have no idea, but we could do really invasive surgery. And I said, hold on, hold on a minute. And I started looking into what am I feeding her? Could this possibly be contributing foods, possibly be part of the solution? And I discovered that yes, in fact, they could be part of the solution. That is when I embarked on this journey to local foods from farms surrounding my area and farms I could go to and personally visit and be a part of that process. So were you interested in nutrition at all before that, or it was really your daughter's ailments that brought you to it? I would say I was peripherally interested in nutrition. I was intrigued and I had a stint in high school and college as a vegetarian because I was aware of the industrial meat system and absolutely did not want to participate in that. But I was not aware of the wonderful alternatives we have to that industrialized horrific system. Oh, I'm so glad you said that because we really want to spread the word about that. The commercial meat production system that is in place in this country is not the only choice and that there are alternative choices that are good for you and also for the environment. So yeah, I'm so glad you said that. So glad you're going to talk about that today. That's great. I want to go back a little bit to your, how old was your daughter when she started exhibiting these symptoms? Was it from the time she was a baby? Yes. It was from when she was very young until she was about one and a half when I made the dramatic switches in our family's diet. Yeah. You know, when you went to the doctor, was there any suggestion then that it had to do with diet from the doctors? The doctors did not mention food. They didn't mention diet. There was one time I took her in and she was a little bit under average in the weight category. She was a a small baby because I'm kind of a small person too. The doctor said, well, you know, we really need to get her weight up, feed her pancakes and maple syrup and ice cream. And I thought, well, that doesn't sound quite right to me. (laughs) So I didn't necessarily follow all of that nutritional advice. (laughs) 
and I pursued additional information on my own and to properly nourish my family. What did you first pick up on? And this is interesting. I think a lot of parents out there have a similar story. Well, one of the first things I learned about and really took a deep dive into was the history of raw milk in our country and why it had the current negative implication it has today. Based on several experiences happening simultaneously, I realized that raw milk from a local farm I knew and could visit was something wonderful. And it was something that I wanted to feed my family. And understanding the process by which it became a food that was so vilified was the really eye-opening exploration, really diving into the history of food in our country and the food regulations and why they are the way they are. I mean, it's fascinating once you begin to understand what goes into all of that and then take a perfectly wonderful food like clean, fresh, safe, raw milk from a local farm. That is a nourishing healing food. I know it's a huge topic and we could do a whole podcast on it, but can you just touch on some of what you're referencing as far as why it was vilified and and that led to your understanding? You are right. That is a huge topic. So I'll do my best to summarize it quickly. (laughs) The, The short answer is around the turn of the century, early 1900s, the investors realized that they could park the dairies right next to the distilleries and feed the cows the waste from the distilleries. And this was ingenious for them because it took a former waste product, the waste from the distilleries, and turned it into a product to feed bovines. And as part of that, the conditions that these poor cows were kept in, these conditions were horrific. I mean, imagine standing your whole life on concrete in your own waste. That was the life of these cows. Furthermore, there was no refrigeration, no closed milking systems. So you have workers who are any level of sick themselves from tuberculosis or poor city conditions. You have no sanitation in these places. And can you imagine the milk from those cows was not ideal. In fact, it was really, really bad. And it was bad for the infants who were getting it at the time. And what we saw in conjunction were about 50% more mortality rates for infants in those big cities, Chicago, New York. And because of that correlation there, and probably rightfully some causation, but you know, we don't have that. But because of that correlation, there were two campaigns that started in America around milk. One campaign was for mandatory pasteurization. They said, it's this milk causing this problem. We need to pasteurize everything. The other campaign was for certified clean raw milk, where a team of doctors would go farm to farm and check out the conditions of the cows, make sure it wasn't cows in these distillery dairies. They would go to the farms, check it out, make sure it was being produced in a sanitary process. And then this would be certified clean raw milk but it was less efficient. They called it less efficient. And so mandatory pasteurization won out. Well, that was a hundred years ago. Now we have much improved sanitation. We have closed milking systems. We have rapid testing. We have refrigerated trucking. We have all the solutions for this. Now it's time to open up raw milk to make it more widely available. Yeah. Top three reasons raw milk is so wonderful. Let's see. It is a beautiful food created by nature, a gift from nature. Some call it a gift from God. It can be both. It is. It's a wonderful food. really high in a lot of the probiotics that we need. So it's an enriching, wonderful food. Second reason, the farms that are producing raw milk for people to drink are farms that are feeding their cows. They're naming their cows. Their cows are living 
a long time on these farms and they're given a dignified cow life. Does that make sense? Yes. <laughs> they're not stuck in confinement somewhere. And that matters to me. The ethics of how we treat our animals matters. And it matters in, in terms of what the quality of the product and the participation in the system, right? And the third reason is the local connections and the local economy. So if we are going and we are giving our hard-earned dollars to a local farmer who's working hard and who has developed a level of expertise on these topics, then we are participating in a voluntary system where those people can get paid a fair and living wage for the work they're doing. Uh-huh. And if you if you go to the store and buy a gallon of milk for the store, the farmer had zero say uh-huh. in the price that they're getting for that milk or for oh, right what they get to charge for their expertise. They don't have any say in that. So the dairy industry as a whole, it's price controlled and it's price controlled on the processor level. The farmers have no say in it. And we're seeing the dairy farmers are just being ravaged through these price controls. It's utterly tragic. Wow. No pun intended. Right, right. (laughs) Terribly tragic. Okay. So, and is that sort of how the buying club happened? Can we go back to the buying club? Yeah. So this whole journey started through wanting to feed my family, my children, great foods from local farms. One of the cornerstones of that is yes, raw dairy, but the other aspects of it are that I want to be able to support my local farms year round. I want to know where the meat's coming from. I want to know that it's not just got this arbitrary grass fed label on it. I want to go to the farm. I want to see the cows grazing. I want to know the process that they're going through and it spiraled from there. Right. So getting involved, once you dip your toe in the water, you want to jump in. Part of what we see in this choice, it's a softer, slower, more appreciative way of living. Mary, you know, I mean, you wrote the book on it. Yeah. (laughs) You get to enjoy. It's about quality of life. It's about community. It's about being able to slow down and celebrate and appreciate not just the taste and the flavor of the food, but in how it's produced. And then the connections to the people producing it. I mean, it's wonderful knowing, getting to walk the land where my food is grown, knowing the farmers who are growing it or who are raising the animals. So how did we get from um, your daughter's illness to actually starting the buying club? You wanted to really be connected to the food we fed your family. So then what? Right. So it happened organically where I'm getting these foods from the local farms for my family and other people wanted in on that. So it formed very naturally where we start picking up for other families and it happened more. And I realized I'm really good at this. I know how to find the right farms for the products we need. I know how to go to those farms and verify that they're being honest with me and honest with the other customers and created a whole new model for it. And I think this model is one that can take over the supermarket model, right? Because one of the driving beliefs behind this is that I really truly believe that we should have access to local farm produced foods as frequently as we have 7-Elevens, liquor stores, and fast food joints. Mm. I mean, I I remember marveling, like I was pregnant and I realized I could go to a hundred places within a five mile radius of me and I could get all the alcohol I wanted and all the cigarettes I wanted. Fast food. And and I could legally and fast, I could feed my children Mm -hmm. fast food all day long. Yeah. All of that was widely available, but try to find local farm fresh food. At the time, there was only my sources and I had to drive two hours. Wow. So I realized I want to help make this vision a reality and let's get this into neighborhoods. Let's get it places where people can access it easily. And so now what is that? My mom and I both know because we have bought from your buying club. But can yeah. you explain people who, two people who don't have any yeah. idea what we're talking about, what literally that is from the consumer side? 
So a buy-in club is kind of an umbrella term and it can look like a lot of different ways. And that's part of the beauty of it is that it can be flexible to fit different needs. So in my buy-in club, what I do is I aggregate products from local farms and make deliveries to local neighborhoods and everything shows up on ice in coolers. People's names are on them. So it's organized. It is convenient. That was a really key point. People wanted convenience. So when we deliver that way, it is convenient in terms of timing. Some other farms will do a meetup in a parking lot, but you have to be there at three o'clock. And if you're not there at three o'clock, you miss everything. The way we do it, it's a lot more flexible with timing. And keep in mind, this was pre-Amazon days. So before things could be delivered at your door the next day. Right. So giving a big window, a flexible window of pickup was convenient at the time and still is. And people still appreciate that. And also having the neighborhood pickups gives people an opportunity to form community connections. That is even more important today than it was before. So the customer goes online and they order from basically everything that's available is listed and you just like you would order from Amazon. You need to do it by a certain day and time so that you can process the orders and then it's delivered, like you were saying, to this pickup location. And the pickup is very convenient and open-ended, as you were saying. That's really what it is. It's like, place your order by a certain time. And it's not like two-day delivery. You can order anytime you want, but it's just delivery one day a week. Yeah, that is correct. So I think it's important for our listeners to understand how this is different from a CSA. And if they're wondering, wow, I wonder if there's something like that around me, how can they find other buying clubs that are a similar model? Usually a CSA is a prepaid one farm commitment Mm -hmm. and people will prepay for the whole season, maybe the whole year. And it's a big chunk of cash. Usually it's just produce. So they'll get the produce from one farm then. Some CSAs have expanded a little bit, but that is predominantly how a CSA operates. And there are very good reasons for that. Farms need to know that they're going to have support through the whole year. It's really hard for farms to grow an entire crop and then to take it to market only to stand there and have things not sell. So it is a really important model. And I want to be clear that these two models are cooperative and supportive rather than competitive. Absolutely. And then a buying club is often pulling products from multiple different farms to give customers and shoppers a little more variety. And it's a get what you need when you need it type of thing rather than a pay now for six months worth of food. Yeah. And it, it works for the customer in that if you're going to be out of town or, you know, you've got plenty of stuff that week, there you're not under no obligation to order. Right. And it's just like going to the store, but it's more like instead of going to the supermarket, it's you collecting the food from the local farms and taking it to a common delivery place. So, And I'll add to just my personal experience of shopping with your buying club, Liz, that I love the variety of other goods, not just farm stuff, but like the bakery and the chocolate and things like that that were like yeah. finished goods, I guess, that I couldn't find at the grocery store even if I wanted to. So that was a fun little like add-on. I would get it with my meat or whatever else I was buying. Yeah, that is one really nice thing about buying clubs in general. CSAs could do it too, but it takes mm-hmm. so much effort, is finding special artisan products mm-hmm. from either farms that are out of the area because items don't grow here, like chocolate, mm-hmm. or finding things that are produced here and then an artisan takes it to the next step, like some of the 
wonderful breads mm-hmm. yeah. made with local grain, for example. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun to compile those together because then the combinations are like foodie utopia, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I'm getting my cheese and my bread and my chocolate all at once. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's like the it, best. It get better, right? <laughs> yeah. And if something's not necessarily local, as in, I know you have this wonderful olive oil that yeah. you make available. That is a uh, family and business that you support and bring that product. And that's nice because then I can work with and partner with farms. Yeah. Maybe they're not local, but they have the same principles that these farms have. So they're, sure. res- they're sustainable or restorative farms. They pay people yeah. a fair and living wage. If there's animal agriculture involved, the animals are treated really well. So it, it's all part of the same principles. Right. Right. And being able to find those and the quality has to be there too. Yeah. Right. We want that high quality. So all of those things are important. It allows us to get products. You're not going to find local olives. (laughs) You're not going to find local chocolate. So instead of just dipping back into those industrialized systems, you give an alternative to get those things that are responsibly sourced. Exactly. What do you want to talk about with supply chains today? Yeah. Ooh, supply chains. That's a huge topic. And it's one we've seen a lot of news about recently. Yeah. One of the things I want to distinguish about that is that when you have a short supply chain, you create a level of security in those items, right? Because you're not having to transport it across the Atlantic or the Pacific. And when we're sourcing from local farms, that is a short supply chain for the food products. And it's very important I cannot emphasize this enough, and I know you all understand it as well, that we keep those supply chains strong. And there's always a temptation to look for something cheaper or look for a better deal or Mm -hmm. go with something, another pain point. And that actually reduces our local food security because the best way to have food security is to have it produced as close to home as possible. Most of us are no longer able to do that in our own backyards. I mean, can we grow some? Yes. Can we grow enough to feed our whole families for the whole year? Mm, Probably not. I know that I can't. Yeah. And so having local sources means that I'm going to have food security, even if the supply chains from California or from other countries completely breaks down. Yeah. The important thing is enough of us have to support the farms who are growing this food that those farms can stay in business. Yeah. I think it's, you've really hit on something so important. I think there's often the encouragement to support your local farmers is framed as we want to do this for their sake. We want them to have a good business. But we really need to pivot that and understand that supporting our local farmers is just what you said. It is ensuring our own food supply in the event the type of supply chain disruption that we saw last year. And there could be any other number of events that keep that food from crossing the country or the ocean or whatever. And all of a sudden we're going, well, where's this or where's that? And why is this so expensive? And it's because we do not have the solid local sources in place, just as you're describing. So it's not just for them. It's for everybody. Absolutely. And tagging on to that, look at the fires last year and this year in California, they have decimated the wheat crop, the fires and the intense drought. And now we're looking at massive price increases. I mean, it's not going to be tomorrow, maybe, maybe it will be. And so having 
local food sources and a local food supply chain also means price stabilization. Yes. Definitely higher than we might be used to paying because we're not used to paying living wages to our farmers and that has to change. Right. So you might be paying more initially, but it's going to be a more stable price. And then we all have an opportunity to participate in our productive system when we relocalize our food supply. Also, you were talking about how it's beneficial to us to have food security. Yes, absolutely. And it's it's beneficial in so many ways because when we are sourcing our food locally, producing it locally, when we're supporting that system, we have much more immediate feedback. Okay, so this crop isn't doing well in this region because of this environmental issue or invasive species. Well, then we can diversify immediately. We have that instant feedback and people then will be, maybe that's changing out one food over the course of six months or something, mm-hmm. but it gives us that immediate feedback. It gives us that response to our own ecosystem that we can respond to. And when we are growing a diversity of crops in a bioregion, we're going to get a stronger ecosystem. Well, yeah. we're going to get stronger ecosystems. Mm-hmm. We have many of them here and that's where our focus needs to be right now. That is our solution. That is our antidote both to food scarcity issues and to climate change. It is the antidote, a local food supply. And regenerating the soil, which in turn... Absolutely. I think it's important to emphasize the nutrient density of the more local foods over the foods that are grown in monocrops on the other side of the country. Well, the potential, the potential, right? Right. Because near me, there's still quite a number. If I go 50, 60 miles east, there's quite a number of industrial chicken coops. Yeah. Yeah. So local doesn't always mean more nutrient dense or more environmentally sustainable, but it does mean that you have more immediate feedback because also where does the chicken go after it's grown on the Eastern shore? It goes for processing. Where's that? Does it get shipped to China for processing? I don't know. It's not a transparent system. Sure. Yeah. Right. So when you do have a firmly local system, you have transparency, you have that potential for knowing how your food is produced and whether that's produced in a way that adds nutrients, promotes topsoil, et cetera, et cetera. So you mentioned California, the fires and the droughts. And did you say that was affecting the wheat crops? Well, of course it's affecting everything. Everything, yeah. I'm wondering any specific like striking from last year and this year, any striking like holes or problems in the supply chain as we're talking about it. Maybe people have experienced, maybe not yet, but in your experience being so close to this, what are some examples that have been shocking? Well, you know, I think I am so close to this that none of it's shocking anymore. (laughs) I know last year at the beginning of the pandemic, there were concerns over a meat shortage. And that's because of how our industrial slaughter system works, which is terrifying because everybody's grouped together and all done in a couple of big places. And the shortage would be because of, was it staff like working close together? Yes. I mean, that was the narrative. So it's easy to imagine that that's true. And one of the things people would ask me constantly, are we going to be able to get me? I said, yeah, you might not be able to get exactly what you want every time, but you're not going to be hungry unless that's by choice. Yeah. And I think it's really important to remember that just because bacon's not available every time you want it doesn't mean that we're having food shortages. (laughs) It means we're having bacon shortage or (laughs) prime rib shortage. So, you know, adaptability is vital and being able to cook from home so that you can take a tough roast and make it delicious or cook vegetarian for three months if that's what's most available. And that's what matches your budget. Find 25 million sweet potato recipes. 
Yeah. <laughs> I love that uh, because having a hard time getting bacon doesn't necessarily mean that there's a food shortage because living on a farm with the seasons totally apart from the industrial food system, there's a lot of stuff that's unavailable a lot of the time and you're fine. You just make adjustments depending on exactly. what season it is or whether or not the animals even, okay, milk, for example, there's a time in the spring when the mother needs to wean or what is it? No, it's like before she calves, right? there's less milk because she's storing the milk up for the baby. Is that right? Is that how that goes? Yeah. So in the spring, there was this time in our CSA where the milk supply for the CSA members was diminished. And we were like, oh. It doesn't mean there's a milk shortage and yeah. that it's a crisis. It just means that it's part the of the cycle. Nature. Yeah. Exactly. Important like, distinction. <laughs> it's only very recently that we've had access to strawberries in December. Yeah. And right. And that is the unnatural part. Yeah. Not yeah. having every food we want at our fingertips all the time. And you know, from your lifestyle and from what you've studied and written about, you know that you have a deeper appreciation for those strawberries when they show up. They mean more. They mean more. Just like waiting till mid-July for your tomatoes. It's like every week you get more and more excited because you're going to get the tomatoes. You watch it turn from green to red and then get the first tomato and it's joyful. Uh And then trying to have a insipid pink tomato in February. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) It's not even worth it anymore. Yeah. In our community, we talk so much about living in sync with the seasons and the cycles. Mm -hmm. And so at least regionally, the things that come along become a way of marking the year, you know, like the strawberries start showing up in May. And then, and then about the time they dwindle out, you're going to have blueberries and cherries come in there. And the season has a real, literally a flavor and a personality. And it's just a way of enhancing the world. <laughs> Absolutely. I, yeah. I love it. Right. And, and then you have your staples like milk and eggs that you have most of the year. Winter, the egg production slows down and right. spring, <laughs> the milk production slows down. But then in the later spring, then you get strawberry shortcake because you have strawberries and so much milk you get to make cream and more eggs than you know what to do with. Yeah. I've told this story before on here, but we'd like to talk about aha moments. And one aha moment for me was, oh gosh, 10 years ago, maybe, maybe longer. My husband brought home a little tiny plastic clamshell of about, you know, like barely a palmful of raspberries. And it was in February. And I remember looking at that thinking, something's not right. This is not right. And it, you know, it had cost like something like $6 and uh, something shifted in me then that, you know, you're not supposed to have raspberries in February. <laughs> and now, many years later, sort of followed this line of thinking. Now I live on the farm, have a big patch of raspberries out just on the other side of the fence. And end of June and early July, we have so many raspberries, you can't see straight. And so I, I think about that. I think about a tiny little clamshell of, with that little handful of raspberries that was flown on an airplane from California. Yeah, it's really extraordinary when you think about it. Really, all the resources that went in to us having that little bit when there's so much abundance when you approach it differently. Absolutely. 
Yeah. I just love this idea of talking about the realization in the past 18 months, year of, oh, if our supply chains break down, then we don't have things and that can feel really scary. It is really scary and it can feel apocalyptic in a way, but it's just that we've become so accustomed to having more than we could possibly ever want or need all of the time. And that's really unsettling and it kind of is crazy making and it's kind of beautiful to be able to learn how to live without some things all of the time. It's not a bad thing. It just makes it better. It does, right? It, it sharpens the appreciation. Yes. Yeah. And it's also like, what kind of an entitlement are we conditioning ourselves that we can't learn how to make sweet potatoes more exciting when yeah. we have <laughs> thousands of pounds of sweet potatoes and zero bacon? Right. Like, <laughs> we can be a little more creative than this. So back to my story about the raspberries, it brings up another point. The non-local, long-distance food requires a ton of fossil fuels, not only in the transportation, but in the largely plastic packaging that it requires to stay remotely fresh by the time it, it goes all those miles. So you'll notice when you do start eating locally that there's a great reduction of that and of packaging in your life and in your kitchen and all of that. So that's a, just a wonderful side benefit. And a lot of people, you know, they want to cut down on plastic anyway. This is one way to, to go about that in a big way. Well, very true, Mary. And let's keep in mind that with the packaging that we see, Mm -hmm. there's probably 10 times more that's not visible to us. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the plastic packaging that's needed to get something from the field to the processor mm -hmm. and then from the processor packaged up, and then you have so many layers of packaging. So you, they'll take the fruit and they'll wrap the fruit in the shrink wrap and then they'll curtain it up and then they'll wrap the whole curtains on it. They'll put the whole curtains on a pallet and wrap all of that in plastic. Mm. And then it gets put on whatever container ship or whatever airplane. And then it gets flown or shipped wherever it's going. Mm -hmm. And then all of that gets taken off. So we don't actually see it. And that plays also into the hand of the supply chain, right? Because if there's food available where it's grown, mm -hmm. but then some of that packaging isn't available available because of the supply chain issues, then that food has to stay where it is and can't get to the people who need it because it, there's not the right containers to put it in. Wow. Mind boggling. And so <laughs> it, it really is mind boggling when you start to think about all the ways that that's wasteful and all the ways that the packaging and the supply chains and the packaging are breaking down our ability to have food security. That's amazing. And then, then it gets into the issue of the actual food waste. Absolutely. Yeah, talk about that. Food waste is a huge issue. It's an issue on the farm. It's an issue at the processor. It's an issue at the home level. And what we have the most control over individually, of course, is the food waste at the home level. What do we do? Are we going to throw away that bit of produce because we don't know how to use it? Are we going to throw it away because we let it go bad in the fridge because we didn't plan our meals or are we going to use it, right? On the grocery store level or on the restaurant level, the pursuit for the perfect produce. By now, I'm sure your listeners all know about ugly produce, right? And about how important it is to buy the produce even that has a blemish on it. But then start looking at the massive level when you get a food recall or when you get an outbreak in the industrial level. I think it's the past 10 years we've had mind-boggling. I don't want to misquote numbers, but yeah. <laughs> unimaginable poundages mm -hmm. of meat that has to get disposed of. Mm. I'm sure some of it goes to the pet food industry. Sure. 
But does all of it? Do you mean like from grocery stores, like that doesn't get sold? Well, there's that level of food waste too, but I'm talking about, no, at the processor, like if somebody, if you see the headlines that say 500,000 pounds of ground beef recalled over listeria. Yeah. And these headlines, I mean, when you're dealing on the industrial level, you're going to get numbers that size in one recall. Yeah. When you're dealing on the farm level, you're going to get like 200 pounds. Yeah. Like it was one cow that maybe was sick. We talked about this in our episode with Liz Riffle of Riffle Bison Farm. She talked about this very thing about how the small producer has much less opportunity for, you know, wide scale contamination or mistakes or whatever. So the food waste potential goes way, way down when you're dealing in a small, absolutely small farm like that, small operation. And also a lot of people don't really understand that when you have food waste at home, And you throw it in the trash thinking it's going to decompose in the garbage. And so it's not a problem. Well, that's not true because the landfills don't have the adequate ventilation and the oxygen supply to help these things break down. So you really, really got to compost your food waste. Yeah. So it stays in the landfill for however many years. It's just like regular trash. And it creates methane gas, which is contributing to climate change. And people like to blame the cows for methane gas. But as large of a problem, if not more so, is the methane gas being emitted from the landfills from the food waste that's locked in there. So that's just something not a lot of people understand. And home composting is a really great thing to do if people are able. And there are ways to do it on a very, very small scale. Composting is its so beneficial. We've been composting for years. And maybe we, we love to compost. So every year we go and we pick up all the leaves from the neighbors, you know, they rake it all up for disposal or whatever. And we go collect it all, put it in our compost. And then um, recently my teenage son, my older one, I don't know, about a year ago, he says he wants to be in charge of the compost from now on because he's treating the compost like he's nurturing it. He says he wants to go see it every day so he can see what's happening to it. And he wants to take care of it and cultivating that kind of curiosity in anyone. I mean, he's a, he's a teenager, but we could all get that curious about what happens in nature, what happens to the breakdown of our food. And it's a gift. It's an opportunity. Do you have this in your backyard? Yes. Cool. So what would you say to a person that's listening to this and they might say, oh, we don't have room for a compost. We can't do that. We can't do any. Is there any advice for anyone that on on even the smallest scale to do something in the home to reduce the amount of food waste? Yes, it's a leap, but take the leap. I know there are really tiny composters that you could actually keep inside that filter the food. Like you put the food on top and then you pull the drawer out that's got the finished soil in it. Like there's really small scale ones. And then there's compost tumblers that you keep outside. And then there's compost piles. So there really is a fit for anyone, even if you're in a small space or if you don't feel like you have outdoor space. And I would add too, even if you are so, you just can't do the composting part, if you just, you can probably find within a reasonable distance, either someone who does have a compost pile or a community garden or a city food waste program. I know DC has one. That's what I do. And you just take your food scraps. At least for me, it's the weekly farmer's market. Or if it's not that, I can also go to certain community gardens, have it. If you just have a place where you can take your food scraps, all I do is collect food scraps. I don't even do the food composting part. So that is Absolutely. so easy. There's so many solutions and there's community solutions. There's yeah. a number veteran compost. They do pickups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know them. They're a really wonderful company and service. 
Yeah. yeah. They took care of the food waste at our slow living retreat. Oh, they came good. And picked it up. Got everything at the end of the weekend. It's really cool. <laughs> so if you're not into composting, find a local compost nerd. Right. Yeah. Partner up. Yeah, they'll take it. There's plenty of home gardeners who would be grateful for that. Yeah. So if this is something that you have just assumed that you can't do because of your living a situation, think again. <laughs> yes. Who or what are some of your biggest inspirations in defining your purpose in this business of getting local food to people and helping them understand the importance of a shorter supply chain? Well, first and foremost, I will say my five children. Mm -hmm. They are my reason for everything and the greatest gift in the whole wide world and my greatest joy and nature, God, the works right there where we wouldn't exist without it. Yeah. And I also, I don't know how to sum this up, but I want to say the synergy of community, mm -hmm. synergy of sharing time and space with people and love, the love that that generates and seeing the importance of those connections for quality of life and how holistic quality of life is that that does not equal standard of living. And so when I think of, you know, there, there are some individuals who come to mind who are trailblazers, who are inspiring historical figures, but ultimately I really think it is that synergy of community and that the beauty of the soup that we all make together. Oh, yeah. We're all ingredients in that and we're all important. Take a lesson from the forest, right? All the trees are necessary. Yeah. yeah. So what does the good dirt mean to you? Well, it's beautiful, a beautiful phrase right there. And what that makes me think of is common ground mm -hmm. and common ground is literally the earth beneath our feet. And it's the earth that we all rely on and that it supports us. But in turn, we've got to support our common ground yeah. and how that also, that idea and that principle can weave us closer together mm -hmm. in our communities and the interdependence of those relationships and the intimacy. You know, there's intimacy of working our precious spot of land. There's an intimacy in that. And then being able to to share that experience and the fruits of that labor and the fruits of that effort with other people in our community. It's a beautiful intimacy. It's a good dirt makes me think of all of that, the common ground that we all have that we all must continue to nurture. You just said so many beautiful things. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like our audience to know about the work that you're doing or that you want to leave with us? Don't be afraid to love, whether that's the compost pile or your neighbor or the cow you're getting your milk from. It's time. We're all here. We're all ready for that. Yeah. That's what we were made for. And speaking of milk, if <laughs> someone has listened to this and they're like, how can I get real milk? It's actually illegal in a lot of parts of the country. And so if someone wants to do something about that, who can they, do they write their Congress? You know, what, what do we do about making raw milk more available and accessible? Ooh, I guess you guys will have to have me on for another episode. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to. Um, I will say that is its own yeah. topic. Being involved with that for 15 years. It is not a short answer. Okay. If someone's listening to this and they want to get involved with a buying club in their local area, or they want access to these farms, you know, surrounding farms, like we've talked about, what, what do you recommend that they do? Is there a website they can go to or where can they find something like that? Yes, there is a website. It's kind of an umbrella for a lot of farms and buying clubs. It's called 1000 Eco Farms. And so you can go on there and find your local sources close to you. Oh, cool. That's great. Yeah. And that's made up of other buying clubs, right? Local. Individual farms and buying clubs, CSAs, 
farmers markets. Oh, it's, awesome. It's, uh, it's kind of like the Etsy for small farms. Okay. Oh, oh, cool. Perfect analogy. Yeah, that's great. Well, we appreciate you so much and helping to facilitate our local buying club. Yes. And do you have any websites or anything where people can find yeah. you? Yeah. Where can we find Liz Reitzig? Well, I have my little corner of the internet and it is nourishingliberty.com. Okay. Ah. And I post some writing on there and I'll be revamping that to share some online courses pretty soon. So. Oh, cool. Please visit. That's Very so exciting. Good. Liz. I can't wait to see that. We so appreciate you and your energy and your commitment to this work yes. and your excitement and willingness to educate others and to bring to the community together. You, you do that so beautifully and we appreciate you so much thank you I appreciate both of you I want to say that Liz your energy and your passion for this topic is just so inspiring and I've learned so much from you and I consider you a like a warrior I do <laughs> you're really out there doing what she's an essential worker <laughs> no she is a warrior <laughs> She's an essential warrior. She's out there doing what needs to be done and talking about it. And you are walking the talk, girl. <laughs> thank you. So thank you. Thank you so much. Really. Okay. So we will talk to you later. Looking forward to next time. Okay. Bye-bye. 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 Thank you so much for coming to listen to the Good Dirt Podcast today. We are Lady Farmer. If you're not following us already on Instagram at We Are Lady Farmer, we're also on Pinterest. We have a YouTube channel and our website, ladyfarmer.com. We have an online membership community called The Almanac. We'd love to see you in there as well. And we're here every Friday morning with episodes of The Good Dirt. So we'll see you next week. Thank you so much, Liz, again, for coming and telling us all about buying clubs and local food sourcing. And don't forget to check out the Lady Farmer Slow Living Challenge that starts Monday, January 31st. And we'll see you there. Bye.